welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Sharon Kogan, recently retired professor and founder of the Religious Studies Program at the University of Colorado in Denver. She is also the author of Sacred Disobedience, a Jungian analysis of the saga of Pan and the Devil. In our discussion, Sharon introduces us to the Greek god Pan and the universe of meaning inherent in the archetypal complex of this ornery, rebellious, and joyful god of nature. Dr. Kogan also discusses Jung's theory of consciousness with a special focus on the concept of the shadow. Dr. Sharon Kogan holds a bachelor's degree in religious studies from the University of Denver, a master of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, an MA from Stanford University, and a PhD from Syracuse University. She recently retired from the University of Colorado in Denver, where she founded the Religious Studies Program and served as director for many years. She was a beloved professor teaching courses on myth and symbol, classical mythology, world religions, mysticism, concepts of the soul, and differing concepts of the divine. Her areas of study include history of religion and psychology of religion. She also serves on the board of directors of the C.G. Jung Society of Colorado. Sacred Disobedience is her first book. Dr. Sharon Kogan, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks so much. So glad to be here. Yeah, I'm very uh, happy to be speaking with you today. And I first wanted to congratulate you on your book. Thank Um, you. I I know that this was a labor of love for you and it shows Um, it's uh, beautifully written. And I think it's a very accessible book, uh, accessible to non-academic audiences. So I want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of it. Um, I think you have some very important things to say um, in the book. So uh, we we have a lot of ground to cover uh, in sort of unpacking this. And I thought that maybe the best place to begin is to look at Pan, uh, because that's what the book is. It's a Jungian analysis of the saga of Pan and the devil. And I imagine that most people are somewhat familiar with the Greek god Pan, uh, but I thought I would ask you to go in a little bit about who Pan was. Okay. Uh, All right. So Pan was an ancient deity of uh, Greece. Uh, and he represented, he came from Arcadia, which is this um, very remote area in the central Peloponnese in Greece. Uh, and it was known as a kind of cultural backwater. You know, it's, uh, in the Greek imagination, it was a primal place. There weren't even any great cities to, across the whole of Arcadia. So Pan emerges as, that's his home territory, kind of a forbidden mountainous, rocky place, you know, a pla- an uncivilized place. Uh, and so this is, you know, this gave a quality to his character. And he was the goat god. Uh, now I have a picture of him, a statue of him on the cover of my book. If you glance at it quickly, you might think, oh my God, it's the devil. <laughs> no, it's Pan. So I'm arguing. I'm not the only one to point this out. I have a long footnote in which I name all the scholars in uh, recent history who recognize a connection between the iconography of Pan and what became the Christian devil. 
the devil is modeled on Pan, not only Pan. The devil is kind of a syncretistic figure. You know, sometimes he has bat wings, he really has characteristics of many animals, but underneath you can see the goat. So the devil has the horns and the pointed ears and the goatish uh, beard and the lower body is a goat and the cloven hoof. <laughs> uh, all you have to do is say cloven hoof and people go, oh, it's the devil. Well, that's the goat. That's the goat god Pan, who in Greek mythology was not evil, but was holy. Um, that's our main point that Pan as a quite natural deity of the, uh, the goat god, he is a god of the, he's a shepherd god, a god of the goats and the sheep and the whole business of shepherding and even fishing. This is how he shows up in the astrology imagery of Capricorn. Did you ever wonder why that goat has a fish? You know, it's a, it's a goat on top and a fish on the bottom. What, what is that, you know? Well, that comes from exactly, you know, right out of Pan's myth, uh, mythology because it's, um, it's meant to represent a way of life. The way of life is uh, shepherding the goats and the sheep. Uh, and you know, you're kind of on the fringe of society when you're out there uh, in the fields you know, with your goats and sheep. And also you enter into a little bit of hunting with your, with your um, simple tools, you know, rabbit hunting, but also fishing. Okay, so the goats are known uh, across the world uh, for their character, for their tough character. And uh, what I learned in my research, it's kind of funny that we're, you know, we're urbanites in our modern world. We never even usually even come near the source of our food. We think the source of our food is the grocery store, <laughs> right? So most moderns don't know there's a, there's a whole, you know, uh, universe of meaning, uh, um, uh, symbolized by the imagery in Greek myth that we, that we are so far removed from, we don't even know anything about it. But if we were to go back in history, if we were to investigate that lifestyle, we would find out that there's a great difference between the sheep and the goats. <laughs> Maybe we know it by reputation now, but as I say, we're so far removed from that. But the uh, ancient uh, shepherds certainly knew the difference. The sheep are obedient. And the goats are not. So this is where I'm getting my theme of disobedience. The sheep kind of follow along a, a, a leader, you know, and they go wherever the leader goes. So they're much easier to control. But the goat herds and the shepherds knew that the goats are ornery. The goats will not follow along with each other. And they're a little bit wild. They're kind of, as we say, liminal, meaning on a border between two um, realities. They are domesticated animals, of course, but they never fully domesticated. They remain kind of wild and uh, a little bit uncontrollable. So, and you know, they can eat anything. They can eat tin cans and so on, which didn't exist in ancient Greece. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so they're ornery, they're tough. And what was so much fun for me, among other things in my research, I found my two uh, kind of technical terms were ornery and horny. <laughs> and uh, both of those terms come from the word horn. So who has horns is ornery. <laughs> so uh, pan comes to stand for then uh, the wild and the natural world um, with its 
you know, behaviors with it, uh, the struggle to survive on the part of all different animals and different groups, foraging, begetting, fighting, and lusting. You see, of course, all of the um, aspects of animality altogether. As he gets, so, so he represents this primal ancient uh, reality of, uh, of um, goat, goatish life, <laughs> uh, the untamable. Okay, what Jung is going to call the shadow, and I know we'll get into this. And then, as time went on, as he's um, as we move into the classical era in ancient Greece, uh, the philosophical era in um, Athens. We're talking about the six to five hundreds and past uh, BCE, before the Common Era. The philosophers did quite a number on <laughs> Greek society, although regular people, you know, didn't read the philosophers. It was an elite. Uh, group that ever knew anything about the philosophers, but they certainly made a colossal impact on Western intellectual history. And one of the things the philosophers began to do in the five, four, three hundreds BCE was to, you know, they became a little bit embarrassed, as it were, about their own mythic tradition. Do we really think that it's cloudy today uh, because Zeus and Hera are having more marital problems. You know, did, it, it, did the lightning strike because Zeus has a pounding headache because Hera is bothering him again? <laughs> you know, this is phil uh, sophisticated philo philosophers speaking about the nature of existence, Plato and Aristotle and so on. So they kind of grew out of it. <laughs> um, they matured as it were, and they no longer believe in the stories of the mythology of the gods of Mount Olympus. So in the philosophical era, the philosophers began to give um, kind of allegorical meanings to all the gods. When we invoke Athena, goddess of justice, what we mean is justice, you know. When we speak about Aphrodite, we mean beauty, all right? So all the gods get uh, reassessed and uh, reevaluated and given philosophical uh, qualities and um, identities. And so when they get around to Pan, well, what does he represent? So the philosophers used a kind of a, a kind of a linguistic trick, as it were, or a mechanism. Uh, you know, the, the word Pan, the name of the god, is a homonym with another Greek word. You know, a homonym, it's gonna sound exactly the same, but it's two completely different meanings. Like we would say story and story in English, you know, tell me a story. It's completely unrelated to my office is on the fifth story of the building, right? Although it's the identical word. Well, in Greek, um, they have diacritical marks or what we call accents on every word. Uh, and that's gonna um, change the meaning of the word. So the name pan comes from a um, conflation of uh, the word paon. And so they, um, merge it together as pan. And then there were versions, I just love this, of the ancient name as pon, his paon, pan or pon. Now I had, <laughs> just a quick aside, but I had a, my precious little kitty that I named Pan when I was working on this book. And I just thought it was so cute. I, I thought I'll have to get another one and call him pon. <laughs> <laughs> Such a cute word. P with the o omega uh, mm -hmm. N. Uh, so paon, Pan related to all these words um, in the Greek language, in the Indo-European roots, uh, for pasturing. It comes from pas and past and pasti and pati. 
uh, pasture, pasture, pasturing, and the P shifts with an F in the Indo-European, pas and pus and pone and fus and food. So it comes <laughs> from the same root as our word food. So this, um, you know, it, it invokes a whole universe of meaning as it were, uh, the whole world of pasturing your, uh, your animals, your herds, and uh, nurturing and protecting them, right? So that had absolutely nothing to do with the other word pan. Now the word pan, his name has a, a, a slanted uh, accent over the A, whereas this other word pan has a circular uh, accent mark. Pan sounds the same, but the two accent marks make it two completely different words. Well, the second word pan with the circular um, accent mark means in Greek, all, everything. So that's at the root of our English words, you know, pan, panorama, to see all, or pan-American or pan-Hellenic. You know, there are certain sites in ancient Greece like the magnificent city of Delphi. They called it a pan-Hellenic site, meaning all the Greek cities would send, um, you know, uh, representatives and temples to all the gods there. So pan means all. Well, then when the philosophers came to allegorize Pan, the goat god, god of the flocks, they used this other word Pan. And they said, well, the god Pan represents Pan all. All of what? All of phusis, which out of which we get our word physics or physical. It means in Greek nature or the natural world. So Pan comes to represent all Pan, the natural world, the physical world, and the world of embodiment, the physical body, the physical earth. Okay, now this is, that's fine. Okay, we're allegorizing. That isn't what Pan was as a goat god, but that's what he came to be over time in classical Greece. Well, then the philosophers do their work, of course, and cont cont give their contributions to uh, intellectual history as it evolves in the Western world. And uh, Plato, uh, you know, I don't think anybody could uh, underestimate the influence that Platonic thought has had on uh, Western civilization altogether. And uh, Plato and the Platonists were, was, were the uh, primary influence, one of the primary influences on the development of Christianity. So Platonic thought fed right into Christianity. That's a complex uh, field, but we can you know, unpack that if we get to that. Uh, so Plato, and then of course, Aristotle also, his pupil had an enormous, we could never underestimate the impact of Aristotelian thought on Western civilization and uh, intellectual history either. Uh, but uh, Plato, especially in his era, had the much greater influence. Aristotle's influence really started to come in much later. So Plato developed a concept of a, uh, perfect realm of pure thought, the realm of ideas or forms as he called them, the archai, they are transcendental. They exist in an eternal, unchanging, absolute perfect realm. And we and our physical world is derived from, somehow derived from that or a copy of that. We are a poor, imperfect copy of perfect ideas and perfect forms that exist in this realm of perfection. That's Platonism. Well, because Plato had such a huge impact, the status and valuation of the physical world, the earth, 
begins to be devalued, devalued enormously under the Platonic influence until by the time we get to early Christianity, uh, the physical world is, is, comes to be seen as a fallen place, riddled with demons. We have ruined God's beautiful creation with sin, with human sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, and so the status and valuation of the physical world, which then we're calling Pan's world, because Pan came to represent all of it, you know, uh, its trajectory just leads straight downward, you know, gets worse and worse till it leads into hell. Uh, and then the Christian, and there are three uh, references in the New Testament, all of them in the Gospel of John, to a figure called the, that John calls the Lord of this world or Prince of this world. And he means by that the devil, he means Satan. Well, this is how the steps occur. You know, it's unconscious. So first you have Pan, the goat god, and then he, he's associated with the physical world altogether. And then the physical world gets devalued uh, enormously so that it's a ugly uh, fallen, Plato called it a prison. And we are the prisoners here. And what we want to do is escape. And then the Christian um, value system places their own uh, terminology and imagery and values on top of that. And uh, Plato's realm of perfect forms uh, becomes in the Christian uh, imagination, their word, heaven. And then in Christianity, the concept is that we human, we came from heaven somehow. Somehow that's our true home. And we're here in this fallen sinful place, the physical world. And we're here to rise above our physical nature and not give into it. And uh, we are in the world, but not of the world. And our main uh, goal in this life is get out, get, you know, seek salvation and follow Jesus back home you know, he can lead us home to heaven where we came from. So the fit, the status of the physical world gets devalued. And this is how Pan becomes, you know, demonized into the devil. And this is how the devil comes to look like a goat god until he comes to be um, viewed as the Lord or Prince of this world, namely Satan, the devil. Yeah, very good. Okay. Um, uh, there's there's a lot uh, that I actually want to go back to uh, with what you just said. So we'll break a little bit of it down. One of the questions, I just want to go back to Pan just for a little bit um, and ask, how was Pan traditionally worshipped? Or where was he worshipped? Were there temples to Pan like there were to the other gods? Okay, and, and it's a good, interesting question. We have sources, we have uh, archaeology and what we call, um, God, I'm forgetting the word, inscriptions all over the, uh, all over Greece, okay, ancient inscriptions, you know, even found on rocks and so on. So there were open air shrines to Pan that were found everywhere. And Pan came to be associated with caves as well. Caves, it's so interesting, caves are liminal. They're, um, in, you know, in this world, but they're the doorway into the underworld. And uh, why do we get caves associated with Pan? Just as I said a little earlier, why do we get fish associated with the goat god? Because it's a lifestyle where you're herding your goats and you're fishing in the streams and so on. You're bringing home the bacon as it were, although pigs are something else <laughs> associated with a different goddess. So you're bringing home, you know, the goats and the sheep, you're, you're, you're 
you know, pre protecting your family and providing for your family. If you can't, you know, fish can always be caught. You can always provide for the uh, family. So what, in a similar way, fish that have no association with goats, in a similar way, caves come to be associated with Pan because it's so interesting to have learned all this for us modern urbanites that know nothing about it. Um, when you're out there and you're out there for months at a time with your herds, you know, in the pasture land, well, the weather might get terrible, you know, it, it might, you know, cloudburst and terrible rain. What do you do with all your uh, sheep and goats? You shelter them in caves or any kind of lean-to or some kind of natural formation that would protect the herds from the rain and so on came to be sacred to Pan. Now, um, so the, you get your herds into the cave. So cave shrines were found all over ancient Greece and he did not have many temples, um, structures that were built purposely by humans of a high sophisticated nature. And this is just so interesting. He's a rustic rural god of the woods. And uh, you know, in paganism, he is still worshiped all through the millennia. Uh, the worship of the old gods never ceased, but that went underground in what we might call the Christian centuries. So Pan or the horned god of the woods was always worshiped by pagans and still is to this day. And he's not evil. Uh, so he represents that primal, savage kind of realm of the woods. And uh, when he gets incorporated into Athens in this classical era, when Athens has become so sophisticated and is producing the great works of civilization, you know, they invented democracy, by the way. That was Athens in the 6th century BCE. They invented the court system. There's so much in our world that comes directly from not just Greece, but classical Athens that we take for granted. Well, we tell the story, the Greeks told the story of um, the Persian Wars. The Persians attack or try to attack Greece in the 490s BCE. Uh, and, you know, they're on ships. So the people on the rim of the uh, sea can see them. You know, oh, the Persians are coming. Here's their, all their ships. We can see them. So the Greeks had a, an athletic tradition Right now, when we are recording this, it's uh, we're into the first week of the Olympics, which is uh, so exciting. Well, gee, uh, duh, by the way, the Olympics were invented by ancient Greece and the and the uh, tradition of athleticism and the greatness and the, what an athlete can uh, accomplish. All of it comes from ancient Greece. Uh, well, a certain town on the rim of um, by the sea, um, the people, this is a real story. Uh, you know, not just a myth, but real history. They could see the Persians coming on the sea and they, you know, this one little town wasn't gonna be able to amass enough of an army to fight off the Persian empire. So they had a runner, an athlete from this town and they told him run all across Greece quick, you know, uh, and tell everyone, yell it out everywhere you go. Uh, the Persians are landing, send an army. All right, and he did. And that guy, you all know the town he came from. It's called Olympia Marathon. Oh, Marathon. Yeah. Mar Marathon. Oh, Marathon. So yes. Marathon okay. Run, which we, I, do they still have an event in the Olympics? It's a marathon. It came from a town so. yeah. on the edge of Greece, and it's a real event where this runner uh, tried to warn the rest of Greece, and they did send armies in there. You mm. know. So the Greeks tell this story of Phidippides, who was the runner, the athlete the marathon runner from Marathon, 
who uh, runs everywhere, and he runs across the Peloponnese through Arcadia, which is a you know more backward sort of rural area, and he runs into Pan, and Pan, who lives there, is just kind of hanging out, you know, and sees the runner going by, and he calls out, you know, the runner says, "Hey, send an army! The Persians are landing!" And he stops and has a kind of conversation with the god Pan. Now you know, in ancient Greece, if you ever run into a, de a deity, <laughs> boy, you better, you know, show him some respect, show him some consideration. So Phidippides stops and talks to Pan, and Pan says, gee, uh, I've been always friendly to the Athenians, and I'm a great supporter of Athens. How come they don't do anything for me? You know, how come they don't even give me any honors, you know, or, or re remember me in their prayers or anything. I'm a god of Greece. I, I'm going to protect the Athenians too. So by the time Pheidippides gets back, of course, he tells this story how he met Pan in the woods of Arcadia on his run. And the Athenians immediately started worshiping Pan and giving shrines and, you know, respect to Pan. And this, this is the part that's so interesting and why I bring it up. Because now, the, for the first time, they're going to build a temple or a you know, worship place for Pan. And in you know classical, you know the the height of civilization, the you know pinnacle pinnacle of their classical civilization in Athens, they did not build a building for Pan. They knew that Pan is rustic and crude, as it were, you know, animalistic and. He represents the natural world. So instead of a stately building, you know, you have the Acropolis on in Athens and the magnificent temple to the virgin goddess Athena. The word for virgin in Greek is Parthenos. So they built a temple for the virgin goddess, still standing, called the Parthenon. And it's a magnificent stately building. And then the Erechtheum and all the beautiful buildings on, on top of the Acropolis. Well, down on the side, on the, you know, down the hill of the Acropolis, they found an area that was undeveloped and they made a grotto, like a cave grotto and dedicated it to Pan. And this is the first real um, temple to Pan on the side of the Acropolis, a wild place. And they had the wisdom to think, keep him wild, you know, represent him as he is, as a wild creature. Uh, so I, I had a student some years ago who put it so well, she called Pan, he's, I like a drum roll when we're getting to something important. Yeah. He's a crude, rude dude. <laughs> so the, even the Athenians recognized his primal uh, qualities and kept his worship place as a primal place of nature. Very interesting, very interesting. And I think that this is going to lead us to especially with the idea of the caves to the what I want to talk about next which is Carl Jung and uh, but before we get there I have one question uh, in regards to the uh, platonic division that we get this dualistic worldview of this sort of imperfect physical world and a perfect transcendental world Pan, if I understand correctly, is the only one of the Greek gods to have died. Is that correct? And I was curious if this dualism that's created by Plato, if is that what killed Pan? <laughs> um, maybe indirectly. 
indirectly, but we have a very strange story that I oriented my book around and it tells of the death of, of Pan. And he's one of the only gods. It's ironic because he stands for the goats and he stands for survivability. You know, he stands for the urgent, you know, drastic struggle uh, that animals in the wild enter into every day to survive, to find food and survive. So he represents survival. And he's the only, one of the only gods to said to have died. This uh, story came from Plutarch and it's our only uh, reference to this story. Plutarch is a late writer. He's writing in the first century, um, yeah, BCE into the first century CE, common era. Uh, and he tells this strange story of a ship that was uh, on its way through the Greek islands it's the, the island of the Echinides, I think. And, it, and as the captain uh, you know, the ship moves toward this island, it's dark, it's nighttime, it's quiet. you know. And he hears a voice from the shoreline. And the voice, it's like a disembodied voice. And the voice calls out, when you get to Paxi, tell them if, if there's no wind when you get there, call out and tell them, Great Pan has died. And the, um, the captain doesn't know what to think about this. The captain is called Thamuz. So there are scholars who tried, scholars who tried to um, find a meaning in that story that Thamuz was really Tammuz, who was the uh, ancient Semitic god who died and rose. There are gods who had died. Dionysus died, but rose again. Uh, Persephone died, but rose again. Uh, but Pan is not described as resurrecting after dying. So that's the difference there. Uh, so the captain doesn't know what to do. And he's very wary. You don't just talk about the gods like that. You know, the Greeks were very reverential toward all their gods. So the ship comes toward this island of Paxi. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very quiet, no wind at all, you know, no weather. And so he said, I guess I better do what the what they told me to do, you know, and he calls out a uh, great pan has died. Oh, Omegaspan Technetke. I'm sorry, I'm not <laughs> right. Great Pan has died. And he heard that all the ship's uh, company heard this enormous great wail of nature, like a great sigh and a sorrow, like a scream or wail, as all of nature, Pan, all of nature died. Hmm. And all the gods left the physical world left nature and nature has died with a great you know cry of sorrow uh, now uh plutarch picks that up his uh context was why have all the oracles gone silent in his day you know there are oracle sites all around greece not just the delphic oracle and these were sites from the earth where there are geysers you know or gases that emerge from the earth and hissing sounds and so on the Greeks thought, oh, that's the gods talking from the earth, the ancient goddess Gaia or Gaia, you know, the earth goddess, giving us messages from the earth. So they set up these oracle sites and would ask questions. We're all familiar with that. Uh, so Plutarch has been asked, well, uh, why are there no more oracles? Why don't the gods speak to us anymore from the ground? Well, Plato, a couple hundred years earlier than this, kind of helped to kill off nature, right? He killed off the physical world by saying, it is a fallen place. It isn't even real. The real is transcendental. The, the realm of truth 
is you must get out of this world and uh, overcome your natural body and the natural world to get to the truth, which is beyond us. So that starts to devalue the earth. Well, by the time we're in the first century, people aren't going to the oracles anymore and the oracles aren't speaking. And we have a very complex, you know, I'm skipping over a very complex field of many, many new religious forms um, springing up and Gnosticism and so on. And one group was more anti-worldly than the next. So I've described it as a trajectory, a mm -hmm. dystopian trajectory that comes into the field in intellectual history and religious history at this time. By dystopian, we mean, you know, anti-utopian. It's a dystopic world. It's a fallen prison of a place. We don't find the sacred here. The sacred has left. Well, symbolically, then all the gods left. Well, that story of Pan's death, uh, Pluto, uh, I'm sorry, Plutarch says, well, this is why he's giving an explanation. He's asked the question, why have all the oracles stopped, ceased? And he answers, you know, I think some of those gods that were speaking in the oracles have died. Uh, and they, they weren't entirely immortals to begin with. Some of them were nymphs of trees. And then, and as we know, a tree can live for thousands of years. I think, isn't this true that the oldest still living beings on this earth are the sequoia, you know, redwood trees are among those trees. They're 6,000 years old and they're still alive. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so the nymph that lived in that tree, you know, is ancient thousands of years old, but trees eventually do die, Plutarch says. And the goddess in the tree dies too. And that's why the oracles aren't speaking. And then he tells the story of Pan, the god of the earth, you know, the woods and the whole earth died. That's why the oracles aren't talking to us anymore. Well, then the um, early church father and church historian Eusebius uh, picks up this story in the first, uh, let's see, he's writing in the three to four hundreds CE. He picks up this strange story from Plutarch and he says, aha, let's look at this closely. When does Plutarch report that the god Pan has died? Because uh, Plutarch put in there in the era of Tiberius, our uh, uh, emperor, all the oracles went silent and the god Pan died, all of nature died. And so Eusebius picks this up, aha, he says, it happened in the reign of Tiberius, Caesar. That is the same time when our Lord Jesus Christ was, um, had advented into this physical world when God in his wisdom came down and put himself in a body and walked in this earth. Uh, that's when it happened and not any other time. Uh, isn't that interesting? Here's why the nature died. Here's why Pan was overcome and died because Christ was in the world at the time and Jesus exorcised all the demons from this earth. So then all the demons comes out in Greek as pandemonia, mm -hmm. which by the way, was the subject, the top, the title of my dissertation, pandemonia, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. death of all the demons. So Pan in the Christian uh, author's words, Eusebius, was formally associated with demons, pandemonia, and negativized, you know, the demons were evil, and Jesus Christ has exorcised or chased them all away out of the earth. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there's this strange story of the death of Pan, which had no other reference 
Okay, very interesting. And it reminds me just, I, I know that in the biblical tradition, wilderness is quite often demonized. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, that's where Adam and Eve were sent, yeah. you know, after they disobeyed God, it was out into the wilderness. And that's where Jesus confronts Satan or Satan confronts yeah. Jesus is in yeah. the wilderness. And uh, it was seen as this place of moral confusion and whatnot. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. And I, I also see a little bit of irony in the sense that Jesus, the historical Jesus, was largely teaching to the peasants. He was out in the pasture lands. Right. Uh, in many. Yes. Yeah. And he uses all the shepherding and goat herding uh, imagery. The pasture and the pasture and the lost sheep of Israel and so on. Right. Yeah, but there it's the the lambs, not the goats. <laughs> yeah, the lamb, right? It's a so the Hebrews had practiced the scapegoating um, ritual, and that's a goat. That's you know all the sins of the society is the tribes put onto a goat, uh, two goats, one goat sacrificed to God, and the other one receives all the sins and all the trouble and negativity and disease and pollution of the society and they tied a red uh, thread around its horn so they'd know if it ever came back they didn't kill it they pushed it out into the wilderness and there go all our sins and all our problems that's called scapegoating so mm -hmm. i have a section in my book where i talk about the spotless lamb led to the slaughter jesus so uh, it's the same formula though and uh, we're getting into Jung here, and yeah. Jung will see that quite differently. So I called him the scape lamb, you know, mm. the scapegoat and the scape lamb. And so it's just uh, my funny little note here that I'm reading my text over and over and over, you know, and your eyes kind of gloss over after a while. So I'd always read that scape lamb as space lamb. <laughs> so I in my mind that he's a space lamb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know one author is making an argument. Um, uh, he, he's referring to Jesus from outer space uh, oh, okay. because of the cosmic Christ. Um, uh, and he, yeah, so he's, uh, his book is, I think something like Jesus from outer space. Oh, okay. Uh, like an alien traveler. I, I don't know. I haven't read the book. I've only heard bits of his argument, okay. uh, but it's focused on, you know, Paul's version, oh. uh, of Jesus, which is a different topic. Um, so uh, I think that maybe what we might want to do uh, to flesh this out is take a look at you. And uh, I, I know that probably most, if not all of my listeners are familiar with Carl Jung. Um, but um, I thought it might be helpful for the few who may not be, uh, okay. if we could introduce him a bit. Okay. And uh, specifically, and I know this is a loaded question here, there's a lot to this, uh, but I thought it would be important to explain some of the concepts that you use throughout the book, uh, in particular, shadow, repression, projection, yeah. archetype, and complex, uh, because those are all crucial to what you're doing. Right. Okay. Uh, and I have uh, something directly from Jung here. So Carl Jung was a Swiss psychoanalyst who worked with Freud in the early part of his career and was kind of like a protege to Sigmund Freud until they split. They had differences of opinion on many topics and uh, had a bitter kind of split in the end. And uh, Jung went off in his own direction and developed his own uh, 
school of psychology, which we call analytic psychology, uh, which others just call Jungian thought. And Jung um, really traveled from the Freudian uh, basis. And eventually he came up with his own uh, theory, kind of overall arch, uh, overarching theory of consciousness. Now, he worked as a 25 year old, if you can imagine as a intern in a Swiss, uh, what they called insane asylum at the time with psychotics, you know, manifest, you know, psychotics who are so far gone as it were that they can't really function in society. So they've been institutionalized. Well, he found it very, very hard to communicate with these people. And he was just thrown in to try to, you know, find some kind of cure. You know? uh, and uh, he actually listened to the ramblings of the psychotics. And this was the first time, this is 1900. And this was his first introduction to a strange language. He called it the language that's native to the unconscious. He thought these psychotics are speaking straight out of the unconscious. Uh, and it seemed to him, he listened very closely to their imagery and it would be disjointed, shift from here to there, you know, with no connection and bizarre imagery and so on that he would hear. Uh, and it seemed to him, it sounded most like the language in dreams. Uh, you know, in our dreams, we might shift from here to there so suddenly and strange, very bizarre things can happen in a dream. So he thought of this and he started, he wondered, well, what would the dreams of the psychotics be like? So he started to ask some of these psychotics, some that were more verbal about their dreams. And their dreams were so amazing. The dream of the psychotic was something like, you know, I see I'm out of some, something in my uh, cupboard and I need to go to the store. So I go to the store and in my dream, I'm going up and down the aisles of the store and putting items in my cart. And at the end, I pay for it all and come home and put it on the shelf and I wake up. In other words, their dreams were logical, ordinary, sequential, not much happening, regular, ordinary life. And yet their waking life was dreamlike, you know, as if they were in a dreamscape, bizarre imagery and strange things and so on. So Jung started to think, well, the psychotic is just the reverse of the norm. They are speaking out of the unconscious while awake. And then while asleep, they're in the rational side of the consciousness. And for the rest of us that aren't, um, you know, institutionalized as psychotic, we are in our rational minds while we're awake and we're in the manifestly irrational realm of the unconscious while asleep. And this isn't you know, wrong or something you know, diseased about it. It's just the reverse of the norm. So this is how he was uh, first introduced to the strange language of the unconscious. And the more he investigated it, the more he thought it sounded like mythology. And he comes up with a whole theory uh, that the language of the unconscious is the language of myth and the wor worldwide mythology is its um, proponent, you know, its expression. Uh, so we can read world mythology in all the religions of the world and uh, artistic expressions and so on as the expressions directly from the unconscious. Then he found an amazing similarity across the world and similarity in the ramblings of his psychotic patients and individuals' dreams and fantasies and so on, he saw the same motifs and imagery that we see in mythology around the world. Uh, so he comes up with a theory, what he calls the archetypal theory. He has two levels at work in Jungian thought always, a personal and a collective level, because he found this language to be spoken all around the world. 
and all through history. Now we in religious studies are in a position to do like the field work for the Jungian hypothesis because we study religions all around the world. And we find indeed the same motifs and similar themes. It's always gonna be different because that culture expresses it differently. But underneath is the skeletal form, right? Like all of us humans, we're all unique. We have completely unique fingertips of no one else in the world. And yet underneath, if you go down to our, you know, foundation, our skeletal structure is identical in all people, more or less. <laughs> so he finds the same concept in consciousness that we have universal structures like a skeletal structure underneath in the unconscious. And yet it, we are all fleshed out and each culture fleshes the, out the uh, imagery in a unique way. So here's an example. The, uh, pyramids of ancient Egypt, and there was an interesting uh, guy, Thor Heyerdahl in the 1960s, who tried to prove that the ancient Egyptians could have made reed boats made out of the reeds, the papyrus reeds, and they could have sailed across the Atlantic and made the pyramids in Central America, uh, right? That would be what we call cultural diffusion, that one culture dreams up all of this and spreads it to all the other cultures of the world. Jung thinks that's just exactly opposite. It's not sure cultural diffusion can happen. Well, of course, one society influences another. It happens all the time. But he think, he's talking about something else, parallel development. The pyramids of Central America don't fit the timing. They were thousands of years later. So Jung will call the pyramid structure an archetype. It's a form that exists in consciousness. It pre-exists. And consciousness everywhere it expresses itself will come up with, you know, an express pyramid forms. They're not identical, but underneath it's the same concept. So here I have a quick little quote from Jung about what an archetype is. He says, my thesis then, I'm quoting from Jung directly, is as follows. In addition to our immediate consciousness, which is of a thoroughly personal nature, there exists a second psychic system of collective, universal, and impersonal nature, which is identical in all individuals. The collective unconscious, he calls it, does not develop individually, but is inherited. It consists of pre-existent forms, the archetypes, which give definite form to psychic contents. contents. So archetype, he gets that term from Greek philosophy. Uh, arche means in Greek old and ancient and so on, archaic, but it also means original. Uh, the first words in the Bible, in the beginning, the Greek version of the Bible, the Septuagint, that word is arche, in the beginning, from the beginning. And the German is ur, correlated with our word or, original. Ur, and the ur stuff that the philosophers were looking for. That is arche, original. And then typos is an impression. Like when you walk on the beach where the sand is wet, you leave an impression, your footprints. That's called a, those are called tipoi or a, a type, right? So you put it together, archetype, archaic tipoi or impressions, archaic or original impressions left on consciousness from the ongoing evolution of uh, creatures on the earth. Okay. So we're going to find these archetypes everywhere and all, they're all through religions all around the world. All right, wonderful. Um, and, uh, Let's look then at the shadow, because I think that that comes in. Uh, it's very important uh, to uh, consider that for Jung and Pan as well. Right. 
Okay, so um, the shadow is an archetype. Now, where, you know, Jung worked with Freud. Now, Freud came up with his theory of personality. And Freud, uh, some say this was his biggest, you know, his greatest or best uh, impact. He came up with his famous theory of the id, ego, and superego. Most people are familiar with that by this time. And it isn't necessarily that he was copying Plato, uh, but Plato came up with a very similar uh, uh, breakdown of the personality. Plato called uh, us humans tri tripartite. Uh, we have our reason in our head and our passions in our chest and our appetites down below in the lower part of our body. And that's animal. We're an animal in the lower parts of our body, our appetites. And of course, uh, Plato, you know, um, claimed we've got to negate the appetites, you know, and rise above and lead with reason till our reason can be released from this prison house of our body and flow, fly back homeward to the realm of forms. So um, go a couple thousand years up to from there to Freud and he had the id, ego, superego. So what he meant by the id is the seething, uh, the subconscious Plato called it, I'm sorry, uh, Freud called it. Uh, and it's resident is the id. When we're born, we're all id. It's the savage animal. It wants what it wants. The baby cries. There's no um, ethics involved. You just, the id is driven by what he called the pleasure principle to gain pleasure and avoid pain. Okay, and then the ego develops, you know, and then the superego is the parental voice internalized. Okay, so uh, Jung was uh, uh, exposed to these ideas. And eventually when he develops his own philosophy, he came up with his own breakdown of the personality. And he thinks these are Jung's categories now. The ego, and Jung means something very similar to Freud. That's the ordering center of rationality, you know, rational consciousness. It's lit up, okay, like you have a light bulb go on and we say we shed light on something. That's our rational mind that looks with light with our eyes to examine things, rationality, ego self. And Jung imagines that the ego wears a mask in its, you know, the very front, the way that we present ourselves to the world, he called the persona. The persona is completely manufactured. It's how you want to present yourself to the world. You know, your tattoos or your hair, your clothing, your business suit, however you want to present you. This is how you want the world to see you. Okay. And then that's the mask the ego wears. Beneath the ego then um, is a, a layer. You know, I, I think there's a layer of the anima animus at the personal level in between the ego and the shadow. Um, anima and animus, this is an aspect of the personality we all will have. Uh, Jung brings this in in the 1920s. Anima is the uh, Latin word for soul, the translation of the Greek word uh, psyche. Uh, I'm wearing my butterflies today, you oh. all. <laughs> the uh, butterfly is symbolic. The butterfly in Greek, the word for Greek, butterfly is psyche, meaning soul. And what the butterfly undergoes, the uh, transformation of metamorphosis, is a symbol for what the soul undergoes as we die to the small self and give rise to our great self and the path of individuation as Jung calls it. Uh, so he thinks um, that the anima, which is the Latin word for soul, is the feminine element in the psyche. And the animus is the masculine element. 
Okay, and the masculine and feminine are built into nature, but Jung, even in the 1920s, talked about it as a continuum, you know, as a spectrum. And wherever an individual is on the spectrum, that's how they identify their uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, but he felt that uh, every female has an inner ma male, the animus, and every male has an inner female, the anima. And that's what we project outward into the world. We look for a mate uh, that matches our inner unconscious model of our anima or animus. He says the masculine and feminine must be incorporated in, it, it's it, you know infused all through nature and all through our lives and through our consciousness. This is one thing he points out that the models of deity in the Western world long ago suppressed the anima. There's no feminine in the divine and it needs to be, it needs to be recovered. And then the anima or animus will lead directly into the shadow. So the reason Jung calls it the shadow is because he imagines it just behind the ego, the lit up center of the ego. So it's in the shadows, almost as if you, you know, shine a light outward. Well, if you stand right behind the light there, you're in the shadows. So that's why he calls it the shadow. The shadow then is the resident in the unconscious and, uh, you know, the full personification of the whole unconscious. The shadow is then the dark self, the ancient animal self. He meant something similar to what Freud you know, meant by his id, the id. Um, but the two of them have the opposite concept in mind. Freud thought the id, the ancient savage animal within all of us, has to be severely and strictly repressed if we expect to be civilized at all. Because if we want civilization, we're gonna to have to control our inner animal because if we just let it uh, out as animals in nature are all shadow or all id, uh, they just, you know, grab and kill and rape and steal and whatever. And that's how we'd be acting if we didn't suppress our id. Um, Jung thinks just the opposite. But of course the shadow, the ancient savage beast within has to be controlled if we wanna live in civilization, of course, but you don't repress it. Jung thinks any content of the consciousness at all that gets repressed is going to be very dangerous. Repression will just make it stronger. It, in any material that's repressed gets inflated. That is bigger, stronger, more insistent, more powerful. And it distorts into some kind of monstrous form. So uh, when we're talking about the repression of the shadow at the individual and the collective level, one really great uh, expression of this, in we find expressions in literature and in real life, is the story of um, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Isn't it Robert Louis Stevenson? Yeah. Um, written in the 1890s, I think. Now, the degree to which Dr. Jekyll is civilized is the degree corresponds to the degree to which Mr. Hyde is uncivilized. So Dr. Jekyll, is an exemplary member of his society, you know, Britain, you know, polite society, Victorian society. Okay, so, but he's he's so civilized, he's like meek, you know, uh, and he's a doctor, he makes a potion in his laboratory <laughs> and he drinks it and out of him, out of the mild-mannered Dr. Jekyll, when we say mild, we mean repressed. Out of him, when he drinks the potion, comes Mr. Hyde. Hyde who hides. That's our hidden side, like the shadow. 
is in the shadows behind the ego. So Hyde is the shadow self of Dr. Jekyll. Now, because Dr. Jekyll is so repressed as British society is so repressed at that time, and not only Britain, and not only in the Victorian era, uh, that is why the shadow within Dr. Jekyll is so out of control. He's been nursing a monster. And when you tap into it, Mr. Hyde comes out and now you have a monster loose. So Mr. Hyde, you notice he's, he's always depicted as bigger and stronger and more muscular than Dr. Jekyll. That's the sign of inflation. Here's the inflated shadow of Dr. Jekyll and of all society. So now Hyde is loose and he has no scruples. He's a sociopath. He has no sympathy for anyone or anything. And he just rapes and pillages and murders and steals. He does all the things that we, you know, have learned to control in our civilized society. He's out of control. Here's our model of a dangerously repressed consciousness, Dr. Jekyll, who's nursing a monster, Mr. Hyde, who's going to destroy society, civilization. Well, it, he's, that story is written at the same time. It's so amazing that you have a real life example of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde in the contemporary figure of Jack the Ripper. Now, nobody knows. I don't think that that case was ever solved, right? And there are rumors that he was a royal or associated with the royals or whatever. In, re in regular daily life, he's probably a real civilized, perfect gentleman. And then he goes nuts, you know, <laughs> at night or whatever, and goes out ripping up prostitutes, you know, just horrendous crimes that he committed, you know, savage, cruel, sadistic. And then he wrote to the police in the blood of his victims. Do you know that? He wrote mm -hmm. postcards to the police. Here's my latest victim. You're reading her blood, you know. Oh, my God. It's such a extreme distortion of, of highly civilized Victorian life. Well, this is what's nursed by repressing the shadow so severely. Okay, so literature and real life show the uh, expression of that uh, dangerous dynamic. And that's just what we have with Pan, the old goat god, who represents a shadow because he's an animal. Okay, and the human connected with the animal shows this the shadow side, he's a shadow figure. Uh, and uh, he gets distorted and inflated to be much more powerful into the devil, which is a distorted form. So we have the uh, persona and the ego and then the anima animus and the shadow. Although Jung thought the anima animus is a deep, deep structure, especially at the collective level. And then uh, what Jung called the path of individuation, he notes, uh, he does a lot with words and word origins. So he finds, um, you, know, you can find uh, symbols and meanings of realities by looking closely at the words we use for it. So the word, um, he, he focuses on this word whole, wholeness. And he notes that, and that's the goal of the Jungian system, psychologically for the individual and for this larger society, the collective. Our goal is to be whole, okay? And he notes that the word whole and the Indo-European root is related to the words health, healthy, holy, halo, halo, halography. Uh, okay, all of these words, holistic. Uh, so health and healthy and holy are directly related to whole. So his goal is to create wholeness in the psyche. And you do that by combining the two opposites to create a condition of wholeness. So every female needs to incorporate her masculine side uh, to create a condition of wholeness, etc. The ego needs to incorporate the shadow to create a condition of wholeness. 
that would be health. Okay, so if you're not whole, then you can't be healthy. So anything that's repressed isn't being incorporated, isn't being, his word is embraced. Uh, so that's going to lead to problems. So Jung posits there's always a psychological or intellectual ego term and a corresponding unconscious term or mythical term for the same thing. So his um, method for gaining health, moving his client, his patient toward health, is what he calls the path of individuation. The mythical term for it is the hero's journey. So the hero in myth represents the ego self. It's light, it's lit up. So it's sometimes called the solar hero. So here, I'll give you an, an example. So often in stories, the vehicle that we're traveling in, you know, is round. It's a mandalic. It's the round shape or mandala, which shows up in religions all over and symbols and imagery all over the world is a symbol of wholeness. So we're traveling, you know, let's, let's say, oh God, let, we could go, we could do it so easily in our imagination. We could just leap and travel to a galaxy far, far away. And we're traveling in this sacred vehicle. It's a hunk of junk as we know, but it's sacred, it's the Millennium Falcon. Well, every little detail in that story is symbolic. Millennial, you know, it's ancient of the ages and it's a falcon. That's the sacred bird of ancient Egypt, etc. you see? And who's traveling? We got, first we gonna, we're gonna find our, our guy, our hero, Luke Skywalker. He walks the sky, you know, he's the solar hero, he's the ego self. Uh, and he's gonna enter into a grand adventure. He's gonna find, well, his trickster element, that's, uh, um, that's R2-D2 is the trickster. Uh, this is entirely parallel to another story when you, when Dorothy went to Oz, you know, she was knocked unconscious and went to Oz. Well, Oz is the deep unconscious. Uh, galaxy far, far away is the deep unconscious. So Dorothy is the ego figure there. Um, she, it's her trickster figure, her embraced shadow, that's Toto, that gets her into all her trouble. Well, you see the exact parallel, and they're both farm kids that are not from that family. They're both raised by aunt and uncle, and we find out they're both royals. It's the same story. It's an archetype underneath, and there are a thousand stories told on the same model. That's why Joseph Campbell called his text the hero with a thousand faces. So we've got Luke Skywalker, whose little trickster aspect, R2-D2, gets him into all the trouble he gets into and saves him. Uh, and he connects with the wise old man, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And they go and travel. They connect with the embraced, personal embraced shadow, Han Solo. He's solo. He's out for himself. He says, I'm not in this for your revolution, sweetheart. And I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. And of course, she says to him the immortal lines, if money is all that you love, then that's what you will receive. So he's the embraced shadow self, the, the savage, the animal, the one that's out for himself, you see? And he brings with him the animal element of the psyche, Chewbacca, who's pure animal. Now we incorporate, we get them all together, just like Dorothy finds the scarecrow and the uh, tin man and the lion, here's her animal self. We incorporate them together and travel and we're gonna go find our anima figure now, that's Princess Leia, and she's going to lead directly to the, uh, she's right in the grip of the great collective distorted, inflated shadow figure, 
Darth Vader. Uh, okay, so the journey of um, the hero's journey, what they're seeking is freedom for the galaxy. You always have a big goal. You always, the hero has to get a boon, has to earn the boon or the gift, you know, and bring it back to all humanity to share it. Your hero's journey isn't over until you share your gift with all humanity. Okay, so, uh, you know, they do and they reach the, the, all of them together on the ship. And the last scene of episode six is with all of them together and even the dead ones have come back and they're shimmering, you know, everyone's together. That's your image of wholeness. You have reached a condition of wholeness. Now, you've got to mess it up again if you want more stories. <laughs> you want a sequel. You can't yeah. stay in wholeness. But, you know, Jung's goal for his clients was to reach wholeness, health, the hero's journey. So each of us, each of you out there listening to this, you're supposed to ask yourself, you know, I'm on my hero's journey. This is also called the authentic life or the examined life. Socrates had said the unexamined life is not worth living. You ask yourself, am I living authentically? Look at the word that's embedded in the word authentic, author to author. Are you authoring your own path? Or are you doing what everyone expects you to do? Are you just living up to societal norms and then you're miserable because you're not living up to your potential or you're not doing what you wanna do? Follow your bliss, said uh, Joseph Campbell. Same thing as saying, get on your heroic path. Now it's gonna take heroic effort to make it through. That's why we call it heroic uh, hero's journey. It will take heroic effort. It will take death. What's called the nekia, the ego has to sacrifice itself all the way into death and then rise again as the phoenix, as the new self, as the great self, the heroic self, as the hero returns. You know, and Bilbo Baggins returns all the way with the ring to uh, the, the Shire. And he says, uh, and then he settles down, he, you know, and Frodo too, he, he saved the whole Middle Earth from evil. And then he just comes back and sits in his chair again and watches TV. You know, I know they don't have TV. Is that it? Is that, you know, you go back to ordinary life? No, no, you have become the hero now. You have become the great self. So there's a wonderful scene at the very end where Bilbo Baggins is carried off, you know, to the realm of the gods. And Arthur at the end when he dies is, is carried on the ship by the triple goddess, you know, to Avalon, the realm of the divine. This is called in the mythology, apotheosis. The hero's journey is not completed until we each reach apotheosis, apo into theos divine into the divine we are rendered divine by our great quest and our great journey but you're not done you ask yourself out there anyone listening to the podcast you know what's my bliss and joseph campbell said so many people ask me i want to follow my bliss but i can't find my damn bliss i don't know what my bliss is and joseph campbell gave a really great answer he said try to identify your agony because your bliss will be in that. And it was sure true for me. My book that I struggled <laughs> and finally got it out, it was agony, it was my agony, but it was also my bliss, you know, the ecstasy and the agony are built in together. That's why it takes heroic effort to get through. So find your agony, identify your agony and your bliss will be in that. But ask yourself now, what is my gift that I'm here to give to all the world? I'm here to share what I discovered and created 
and you're not done till you come back and share it with the world. So there's a wonderful scene in the Indiana Jones movies in the second one where a rich guy hires Indy to go find the Holy Grail, you know, the Grail that held the blood of Christ, which if you drink it, you're, you know, reborn from having been dead. Uh, and this, this rich guy wants it for his collection on his <laughs> mantelpiece at home. You know, you don't, you don't own the Holy Grail that carried the blood of Christ, you know. So Indy has a great line there. And he says, that belongs in a museum. That's something for all humanity to own or share, or, you know, be moved by. It doesn't belong to you. So you, if you went all through graduate school as I did, or you went through medical school or whatever it is, and they put you through hell, didn't they? Well, you don't get all, all the way to a degree in medical, a medical degree, and then you just go home and watch TV with it. You put your degree on the wall and you never, you know, do anything with it. That's not what it was for. It was for humanity. It was to save others from suffering. That's your gift. That's your great gift. If you can't find your gift, you know, think about it. Did you have a child? There's your gift to the world. And they, they put you through hell, didn't it? How many parents would say, oh yeah, my kid put me through hell. Hell and back. It's my agony and my ecstasy. Okay, so yeah. this in the Jungian language is individuation, reaching wholeness and health. Okay. I don't want to talk too much. I'm oh, no, that's okay. It's always... Um... Uh, very good uh, to listen to you. You have such uh, <laughs> wisdom to uh, impart and share. Um, you know, one of my favorite, I think, quotes from Jung is, uh, how did he say it? You know, I'd rather be whole than good. Yeah, right. You know? um, oh, well, perfect. You can't be perfect because perfection right. would leave out the shadow. So this right. was all leading to the concept of the shadow, the dark self or the, you know, animal, savage, ancient self. Jung thinks we have to incorporate that. We have mm -hmm. to embrace that. Just as Dorothy embraces the uh, sh cowardly lion. You know, you're not afraid of the lion. Look at the uh, tarot card for strength. It's a girl uh, with a garland of flowers guiding a lion. Here's the image of ego and shadow combined. Okay, mm -hmm. so we have to incorporate the shadow. Now, my book is about the severe... Um, uh, what's my word? Um, the severe uh, repression of the shadow uh, through the millennia. When Plato first split the cosmos and he said, this physical world is fallen and corrupt. And then the Christians came in and said, it's sinful. You got to get out of it. They split the holy and the true from the lived experience of everyday life, right? So the shadow the savage self in the physical world has been severely and systematically repressed for millennia. So it's ill, it's sick. It's, we've been nursing a monster in our consciousness because we don't allow the shadow to come to expression. So uh, when it comes out af after it's been repressed for millennia, it is much more powerful, all inflated and twisted and distorted into a monster. And this is why once it, you know, erupts out of the psyche, it leaves violence and ugliness and horror in its wake. We today in our world are, are strangling, you know, we're suffocating, we're being bludgeoned. I know I'm mixing my metaphor <laughs> by a severely repressed shadow. This is what you get when you repress the shadow for millennia. Non-stop violence, gun violence, 
continual war everywhere in the world. Sick, twisted, distorted sexuality, which has been repressed for millennia. Sexuality is all in, uh, embraced in the shadow because it's savage, it's animal, it's the forces that nature put into us for our survival. You repress all that, you're going to get a world like we have now. Screaming rage, constant, toxic. I've heard the uh, internet, the um, social media uh, site, you know, called the realm of toxic disinhibition. So much viciousness is spewed out in the in social media. Where is all this coming from? And look at all this angry rage and white male rage and all of this and the gun violence, as I say, all of this is a result of having suppressed, repressed the shadow, which is very powerful. This is exactly the wrong uh, aspect of the psyche to repress because it's going to come out as a monster. And that's what we uh, are witnessing in our world. If I can just say quickly, I know I'm talking too much. I don't know. Uh, Jung wrote an amazing set of articles on World War II, on the Holocaust. Now, the first one is in 1936. It's an article called Wotan. Wotan was a Germanic god. You know, we get our days of the week from the Germanic gods. Wotan is Wednesday. Odin, Woten, Woden, Wonden, Wednesday. And Thor, of course, is their famous uh, god. Of course, it's all over the place in the modern myth. And that's a wrap on episode eight of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I've included links in the show notes to where you can buy Sharon's book, Sacred Disobedience. She tells me that the paperback version will be published soon. I've also included her contact information. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. If you would like to support my work in creating free and credible material on YouTube, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find links for both in the... Oh, fuck! And that's a wrap on Episode 8 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I've included links to... ...mythology <laughs> of the uh, Marvel um, Universe and movies and so on. That's modern myth. Science fiction and fantasies, modern myth. Um, so Thor, of course, with his magnificent hammer, the god of the uh, thunder lightning. Uh, we get our word Thursday from Thor's day. Uh, anyway, the gods of ancient Germany were repressed. The gods stand for archetypal forms then. Now, the, I don't want to go into the whole thing. I'm just right. trying to give an example. When Germany Christianized, like all en masse, they were... Christianity didn't come from their culture. It wasn't authentic to them. And they were a warrior, proud warrior culture. 
and they were forced to kind of accept this external norm. And in the religion that they accepted, the model is mildness, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, love the enemy, um, you know, peace that Jesus represented. Well, that didn't fit the Germanic consciousness or culture at all, which was a proud warrior culture. Well, then these gods just got repressed in the German consciousness. And then Jung points to, he started to see a real danger warning signs from his German patients in as early as 1911, 1912. He called it the blonde beast. And we are seeing the blonde beast arising in our world now with the, you know, white angry white male syndrome. And he, you know, witnessed as a Swiss person, you know, witnessed next door to the horror that uh, developed, you know, uh, in Germany. So in 1936, he's on it and he's saying, this is extremely dangerous. The whole nation of Germany is in, a, in the grip of a collective psychosis, which I believe he would say about our culture today. You tap into the unconscious, which here's your swastika, which is an ancient Indian term going in, you know, the counterclockwise direction is into the unconscious. You move into the unconscious and you tap into the monster that's been created for millennia and you release it and out comes, you know, an extremely dangerous monster and the whole world was endangered then. So he writes this series of articles about this, Wotan and then after the catastrophe in 1946, and you can just see he's just horrified at, you know, witnessing what happened. Well, what happened was a collective psychosis, and it had to do in part with the severe repression of, this, of the shadow. That's what I'm pointing to in my book, how we have to release uh, Pan from the distorted guise of the devil, get that off him, just as toward the end of the episode six, uh, such a wonderful scene where Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader asked for it. It was his idea. Darth Vader says, help me take this mask off. And Luke Skywalker helps him remove the mask. That is, remove the heavy distortion of uh, Darth Vader. And underneath we see Anakin Skywalker, a scarred, you know, ruined person, but he's gonna recover his true self. Yeah, and I, I think that um, this is why I believe your book is so important. Okay. Um, I am in complete agreement with you that our culture is very sick. Um, and, and so much of it is based on repression it, from, for a variety of ways, all that you listed. But I also, you know, one of my primary concerns is with our ecological crisis. Yeah. And I think this is precisely where pan is so important Yeah, because we have, repressed that we've repressed our animal nature we've even you know people have a and i think it's unconscious people will often and i've had students do that you know humans and animals uh -huh, right and i always say well humans are animals yeah that's right and i am thinking also you know what thoreau had said is that in wildness is the preservation of the world so we need that wildness. We need, we need a, we need pan. And uh, I, I know we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, so I, I did want to ask you this question. Um, one of the things that I've been interested in is this sort of shifting dynamics, I guess, of religion in the United States uh -huh. and the largest growing community 
has been those who identify as uh, spiritual, but not religious. And uh, the numbers of Christians are going down, especially white Christians. Uh, I think that's down to like something like 44%. Uh And you end your book talking about this a little bit where you provide an argument for something like a uh, a new form of Christianity, perhaps. You talk about the grandchild to Judaism and Christianity or the rebirth of a kind of paganism. Yeah. And I, I, I see that, at, but also at the same time, that this is something that is going to erupt spontaneously from the unconscious. Yeah, it is, right. And, and uh, you know, that we need this new archetype. And my question for you is, you know, do you think that Pan is in the process of being reborn? Indeed, I do. And uh, that's what my book is about and is an invitation, you know, to Pan to be reborn and course through uh, just as I I end with the um, section called an uh, urban myth, a new urban myth. Hmm. Just as that story of when Pan died a wail of sorrow arose from all of nature all at once, you know, and, and the physical world died, is, you know, emptied of the divine. Well, I'm calling for a revival, and I'm saying at the end, you know, I can just hear it, you know, I can hear the tunes and the hoof, you know, uh, marks <laughs> of, um, of the goat god reviving, and, you know, maybe it can't, maybe it starts in the woods, in nature, you know, and, and the new uh, wail is heard. Great Pan is revived. Pan redivivus. Great Pan lives again. And it would waft from the woods, you know, and the natural world over, you know, across the cities and the malls of America. You know, you could be hearing it through the mall, you know. Great Pan is reborn. And he's reborn out of our heart and soul, you know. Mm-hmm. We have, what we need to do is take the distortion off the God and re-sacralize our world and our bodies and our sexuality and our consciousness and and can return from out of our heart and soul and be reborn again. Yeah. And I think that it's what's required is a disobedience. You know, I'm thinking in terms of um, like the extinction rebellion that what we need is this sacred disobedience. Right. And that's one of the elements. That's the ordinary aspect of the goat where the sheep is, uh, you know, follows along uh, and the goat is ornery. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm looking for, I have uh, some printouts from my book here in front of me, but while I'm talking, it's hard to go find it, you yeah. know, my text. but I have a little section there. I'm talking about um, the, you know, the, pastors uh, in the sanctimonious robes of the religious authorities for millennia have convinced us we are sheep and we are wretches and we are born in sin and we are sinful beings that can't even save ourselves and that we need to be saved from our own nature we're stained we're sinful and they have used and we have bought into it for thousands of years we as a collective whole uh, giving them our own permission for them to fleece us, you know, <laughs> the pastors in their sanctimonious robes are fleecing us sheep and pulling the wool over our eyes. See all of my sheep analogies. Mm-hmm. We have been too much of 
following the sheep, you know, to the slaughter, all the way to the slaughter, all the way to our own destruction. We need to get some goat energy. We need to get ornery, you know, we need to revive our native sacred disobedience. And by that, I mean dissent, you know, I mean that disobedience is the wellspring of our whole uh, democracy, by the way. Dissent might be our most prized possession in a democracy. You have to be free to dissent and disobey the norms you know, of society, especially if they're sick, <laughs> if they're unhealthy and unwhole. Okay, yeah. so we've got to revive our sacred disobedience. I refer at the end to Prometheus as well. He's another model of sacred disobedience. He disobeyed Zeus and gave humanity the greatest gift of fire. And he's been punished for it through all of the eons of time. But we honor Prometheus. Where would we be without the gift of fire? Where would we be without disobedience? Uh, for a thousand years in the medieval era, uh, people just went along and there wasn't a lot of uh, generational difference, you know? I always say, and, and so nothing changed. It was a static, stagnant uh, society until the Renaissance, until things start to open up again. You know, whenever you have a generational difference, you know, the kids don't want to do what the parents were. The kids are, uh, you know, rebellious. That rebellious adolescent deal, right? I always say, oh, that's sacred. That They have to, they're supposed to rebel. No matter what they're rebelling against, don't worry about it, but this is healthy for the youth to rebel against the norms of society which they are inheriting. If they didn't rebel, things would never change. Uh, yeah, I think that um, that's exactly what we need right now um, to recognize our animal natures, to hey. rebel, to listen to, you know, to nod to that pandemonia uh, and the daemon, to listen to our inner spirit yeah. um, in, in that voice. All right. Well, um, Sharon Kogan, uh, it's been a delight speaking with you. Um, how can people find out uh, more about you or reach you if they have any questions? Yeah, thank you. And I'm inviting people. If you heard this, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, sure, uh, contact me. You can. I'm happy to have you email me. Uh, my email is Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N dot Kogan, C-O-G-G-A-N at UC Denver, all one word, ucdenver.edu, University of Colorado Denver.edu. Uh, and sure, I welcome, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be welcoming all the disagreement, but that's okay. That's disobedience. <laughs> you can dissent with what I've said. Hey, it's in the spirit of the um, subject here. Uh, but I very much uh, invite your commentary and um, thank you for listening to me. I didn't mean to go on too long. <laughs> Oh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't too long. I'm just mindful of the time yeah. because um, uh, I, you know, I could speak to you all afternoon. Yeah. You to get my book and read my book. It's uh, fun and exciting. Uh, and uh, let's just end with praising the Lord Pan and yes. inviting his return. Yes, I, I didn't tell you this, but that's what I did before um, sitting down uh -huh. uh, and logging into uh, Zoom is I have some pan incense. Oh, great. Um, and so I burned the pan incense and read the um, uh, the Orphic hymn to pan. Oh, fabulous. Isn't yeah. that perfect? Yeah. So I thought that was the perfect way to invoke 
pan uh, and to uh, begin this conversation. Well, I thank you so much, Nick. And I so much appreciate your giving me this opportunity. And thanks to all of you for listening. Okay, well, thank you again, Sharon. Thank you. All right. And that's a wrap on episode eight of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I've included links in the show notes to where you can purchase Sharon's book, Sacred Disobedience. She tells me that the paperback version will be published soon. Uh, I've also included her contact information. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please get this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. If you would like to support my work in creating free and credible material on YouTube, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find the link in the show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.